as we continue our worship, I, I want to pray with you. Father, in the Old Testament, you describe yourself as the faithful shepherd. You love your people. You provide for your people. You give all that they need. You protect your people. And Father, in love for your people, you sent your son Jesus, the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. And so we want to worship you for your great love. Just openly confess and acknowledge your infinite kindness, your mercy, your compassion, your fatherly delight. And we praise you for your affection for the people of the church. And I ask, Lord, that as we look at your word today, you would help us to follow the good shepherd with faithful obedience. I pray that as we look to you for your provision, your guidance, your protection, your correction, that we would be faithful sheep following your lead. Lord, I praise you for what you've done not only in our church, but all over the world as the good shepherd has called congregations together. And we wanna faithfully pray for some of our, our fellow congregations, thinking of First Baptist of Grand Blanc and Pastor James over there. Pray that you would increase their love for one another, increase their love for you and for your word. And I pray that you would bless them. Pray that this morning that their worship would be sweet to you and to everyone there. Pray that you would provide for all they need. Thank you for the way that you have provided for our church and blessed us. And I ask that you would help us to humble ourselves under you and under your word. And I pray for your blessing this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Before we go to the book of 1 Peter, I wanna encourage you, if you have a Bible or you use your phone, to go to the book of Acts for our scripture reading this morning. Hopefully soon we can put pew Bibles back. I would love to be able to have those out. It's, it's nice, I think, to see this in a paper Bible. In Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17, I want to read this passage because I think it complements what First Peter says very clearly. And sometimes clear teaching needs a story to go with it so you can see the teaching put into practice. And so in the book of Acts, we're going to see some people applying and putting into practice what we see in 1 Peter. So Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul is about to go to Jerusalem where he'll stand trial and eventually be sent to Rome. Uh, and so he is visiting churches on his way back to Jerusalem uh, with a real sense that on a human level, things are not going to go well in Jerusalem. And he says, I am even ready to die for the sake of Christ. And so in some sense, you could think of this as a kind of farewell tour or maybe a goodbye tour. He tells the Ephesian elders, you're not going to see me again. And so to people that he deeply loves, he's preparing to say goodbye. And so maybe you might think of different times that you have said goodbye to pastors that you deeply love. Now, heads up, I'm not saying goodbye. I will never forget the first time a pastor moved churches. I was 12, and I was so sad, and he set it up, and I had this awful tremendous, this is not that message, so just heads up. Uh, don't, don't worry or, or applaud too soon, either way. Um, <laughs> 
But Paul is saying goodbye to people he loves. And I want to encourage you to think about the times when maybe it's a Pastor Jack who retired quite a while ago, but he blessed you and you loved him and you loved his ministry. And you can imagine the sort of mixture of a happy farewell party, but also saying goodbye. Uh, Or maybe you sat under Pastor Ed for 14 years and and you can, same way, you can remember a loving sort of, this is a celebration of all God has done for the past 14 years, and yet it's a strange mixture of sorrow because there is a goodbye involved here. Well, this is what Paul is doing. He has gathered together the leaders of the Ephesian church. And so in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, he says some things to them, some of the things that he thinks are most important for them to hear. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I have lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now up to this point, all he's done is remind them of the past. He has emphasized his fearless proclamation of the gospel, talking about what Jesus has done for them and dying for their sins and rising from the dead. And he says, I declare to you the whole counsel of God. So there is a completeness to his teaching. He has not left anything out, even if it's painful or difficult to accept, which much of his teaching was for various people within the church. But then he turns from this reminder, how he lovingly, faithfully served them, and he gives some commands to the leaders of the church. So notice this shift. He's reminded them of the past. Now, because he's not going to see them again, he gives them some clear instructions. He says, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." 
I coveted no one's silver or gold apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I don't want to preach two messages, although in one sense I maybe kind of do. Uh, So we're not going to spend much more time in this. This is the scripture reading, but I want to point out two things. Number one, he clearly uses the language of sheep and shepherds and describes the role of the Ephesian elders as overseers. So in the American context, we are very familiar with the term of pastor, Well, the word pastor comes from the word for shepherd. So as he is talking about the flock that God has called, that has been purchased with the blood of Jesus, he's talking about church members. And he says to the elders, he uses the term overseer, which many of you have heard the term bishop. Some other churches believe that a bishop is a person who is over other pastors or other priests. But what Paul has done here is in talking to the elders, he has said that God has made you overseers and the term overseer is the word for bishop. So I believe those are referring to the same thing and they are tasked with leading the flock of God as a shepherd. So here in Acts, you see all three of those ideas, that of an overseer, sometimes called a bishop, depending on the translation you look at or the church tradition you're familiar with. You also see the term elder. Uh, That actually in Greek is presbyteros, that presbytery comes from that, or presbyter comes from that. And and so maybe you've heard of Presbyterian churches, again, slightly different forms of church government, but all of them are referring to the same thing in this passage here. And what we're about to see in 1 Peter is that all three of those terms refer to the same job within the context of a local church. Now, Paul is saying to them, You have this role of an overseer. You have this role of some sort of authority. And so what does that look like? Well, primarily here in Acts, he warns them of the danger of false teachers who will lead disciples astray. He even acknowledges that within their own church, they're not all going to come from outside. Some of them are going to come from inside. Some of the elders are going to get these crazy ideas and become obsessed with minor things and make them major things and teach things that are not in accordance with the grace of God. And so he warns them this danger is coming. Overseer, elder, pastor, your job is to protect the flock from this danger that's coming both from outside and from inside. And you might start to think like, oh no, does the church have any hope? Is there any future? Or you might think that the hope is actually in the elders themselves as he's encouraging them to guard the flock. That's not what he says. He says, I commend to you, I'm in verse 32, I commend to you God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, he says, church, you will be kept safe by God through the ministry of the word. So it's not the wisdom of a leader or even a team of leaders. It is their devotion and dedication to the word of God to help protect the people of God against false teaching and sin and falling away. And as Paul says goodbye, he's hands off. He's not going to be able to help them in the future. 
He trusts that God is going to work through the local leaders of each congregation to continue to equip and strengthen and bless individual believers. And he has confidence that they will have this rich inheritance and reward as they are faithful to the gospel that he has taught them and faithful to all of the counsel of God to every aspect of faithful teaching. So please keep this passage in mind. It helps us see in practice the things that Peter is going to teach us about in a more teaching style where where there's not as many details about people and places. You can see how Paul put this in practice in the very early church. And so I want to encourage you to go back with me to the book of 1 Peter. We're continuing our series. And uh, I sent an email out Friday. Peter has talked a lot about suffering. And in very helpful ways, he has showed us a sort of future hope and also a present glory and a present grace that's enabling us to persevere when things are hard, when things are difficult. To understand the meaning and significance of being a Christian when your life is not what you had hoped it would be. And now, in chapter 5, Peter addresses first the leaders of those congregations. And so in my email, I said, you know what? We are not called to do this by ourselves, So if you've heard some of the teaching, you're like, man, I know what's true, but I'm still discouraged. I'm still struggling. How do I persevere? How do I keep moving? How does the church as a whole help me as an individual person? Well, I believe part of the answer is in the structure that God intended for the church to have. And I believe we see that very clearly in the words of Peter. And so I want to begin today by noticing some commands for under-shepherds. And I'm just going to read, it's a short passage. I'm going to read all five verses. We're going to take it in three parts. But Peter writes and he says, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, throughout the passage we read in Acts and this passage, and really through the entire Bible, God uses the language of shepherd and sheep. And initially, he uses the language of shepherd for himself in the Old Testament. You can read in places like Ezekiel, how God says that the people responsible for leading and providing spiritually within Israel had utterly failed. And so God himself was going to serve as a shepherd for his people, that he would affectionately care for them and correct them and love them and provide all that they need. And maybe you'd think of Psalm 23, perhaps the most famous passage in all of the Bible. I I remember a time I was riding a bus 
in Chicago. And this guy, he's probably homeless, and I, I don't think he was sober. But he started quoting Psalm 23 just at the top of his lungs as we went stop to stop. And then he interrupted himself and maybe swore a little bit because he almost missed his stop. He made us pull over. And it's just like a weird, funny thing. Like even people who are not sober and totally with it can quote Psalm 23. We understand the sense that God is our shepherd in one way or another. And Peter then takes that and says that not only is God our shepherd, but that those who are called to lead in the church are under shepherds. Jesus said that he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in the same sort of sacrificial servant leadership way, Jesus has called those within the church who are called to be elders and leaders to be shepherds. Shepherds provide. They help make sure that the sheep have basic needs. You can think again of Psalm 23 of, of green pastures and of still water, but, but they also protect. You can think of Paul's warning about wolves and, and you can think of the dangers that come along because predators like to prey on weak sheep and, and under shepherds have a responsibility to protect the flock. And then you can also think of how David describes that, that God led him. And there's a leadership aspect to being a shepherd that you want to understand where you are presently and where you should go. And in some sense, that involves a kind of loving correction where sheep have erred and gone astray. And there are so many passages we could look to, but, but think for a moment of how Jesus describes himself as the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. He mentions in a parable that, that suppose there's a shepherd who has 99 sheep safe within the pen, and he's missing one. And so the shepherd goes after the one sheep that's missing. He has a love and affection for each sheep, and his desire is to keep them safe. And yet, at the same time, there's this sense of, okay, what was wrong with that sheep? Like, why did it go over there? Why, why didn't it stay with the flock? And so the, the shepherd going after that sheep may have to lovingly say, no, you're in the wrong. You need to come back. And there's an obligation to pursue those who are outside of the church. And, and not only those who are not believers who are not yet part of the church, but those who are part of the congregation, but either they have been caught up in teaching that is not faithful and true, or perhaps they have been caught up in a sin that has caused separation from the rest of the body. And the goal is to keep the entire flock together, to keep them safe, to lovingly correct and to faithfully teach and provide. Now, as we saw in the book of Acts, the number one thing that a shepherd provides for sheep is in the spiritual sense, the word of God that we feast on together. A faithful shepherd is a faithful teacher who not only teaches topically, but who teaches the entire word of God so that we are aware of every part of what God has instructed us so that we're not ignorant, so that we're not easily led astray, but instead we are to be devoted to the word of God. And Peter, before he exhorts the elders among these churches, before he does that, he lists his own qualifications. He says, I am a fellow elder, so he has this role of leadership and responsibility. He doesn't pull rank as an apostle. He actually mentions that he is an elder, and then that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, if you put your finger on that verse, 
and you go over to chapter four, verse 13, he is speaking to regular Christians, those who didn't see Jesus face to face, and he says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter is saying, I have done what I have told you, Christian, to do. I have partaken in the sufferings of Christ, and he says he is already partaking in the glory that is going to be revealed. In other words, he's seen Jesus clearly. He understands the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep, and he longs to follow the good shepherd in all that Jesus has taught. And he is trusting that that glory is gonna provide an amazing future. And because Peter has lived a life consistent with what he has seen in Christ, not perfectly, you just read the New Testament, Peter makes some mistakes, even as an elder, Paul has to rebuke him in the book of Galatians. So he's not perfect. But having said that, Overall, his life shows a testimony to faithfulness. If you read the entire book of Acts, you see a man who is used by God in powerful ways as he faithfully teaches the church all that Jesus instructed him to teach the church. They are devoted to the scriptures. They are passionate in evangelism. They love the ministry of mercy where they feed the poor. And they are together growing as a body, as a family. And you see Peter's faithful leadership in that ministry throughout the book of Acts, or at least the first half of the book of Acts. Now, as someone who has, although imperfectly, but has been faithfully leading, he says to the regular elders of these churches, and I'm saying churches because if you remember in chapter one, he addresses this letter to five different provinces. And so he is talking to a few different congregations at least. He says to the elders among you, here's what you must do. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, we need to think about that for just a moment. And, and one of the things I'd like to point out to you is that even in this passage, and I admit it, he probably is talking to multiple churches, but he's talking to a plurality of elders. Every church has multiple pastors so that the needs of the entire congregation are met. Not only do you see it here, not only did we see that in the book of Acts, where Paul very clearly calls together the elders of the church, singular, so that he can talk to them all together. But you see in the book of Titus, Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete to point elders, plural, in every church, singular, and some of you, this may be a little bit different or a little bit new. Some of you have already heard a lot of this, and so it's review, but I want to encourage you to think through the fact that for the needs of the sheep to be met, there needs to be a number of pastors or elders proportionate to the size of the congregation so that no one is neglected. Now, I want to be real clear. Uh, some people have heard that and said, okay, so you, you think we need to hire a bunch of people? Uh, no, I, I don't think that every elder needs to be full-time. And in fact, I don't think many of the elders without, throughout the New Testament church were full-time in ministry. 
As Peter is writing to this church, they were displaced, they were poor. Very likely, every person within the church had to work to provide for their needs. And if a church could support an elder, great. But that's not the expectation. Instead, the expectation is that within every congregation, God is going to call and gift elders so that the needs of the sheep are met. He is the chief shepherd. He is caring for the entire congregation. And if the entire congregation is going to be cared for, there need to be enough people in leadership to faithfully disciple, to know, and to spend time with every person in the congregation. So there's the number that he refers to. It's always in the plural throughout the New Testament. Not only that, there are three ways that this person or people are mentioned here. He calls them elders first, but he instructs them to shepherd, or you could legitimately translate that pastor. In other words, pastor the flock of God that is among you. And then he mentions exercising oversight. Well, oversight is exactly what the term bishop means, and so he is, or episkopos, so all three of the terms that we're familiar with, whether it's pastor or elder or presbyter or bishop, all of those are mentioned here within this context of the same person with the same job to help meet the needs of the church. It shouldn't be one person, it should be a plurality, and the goal is to shepherd and oversee. Well, I've talked a little bit about what shepherd means in terms of providing, especially the ministry of the word of God, protecting, especially from false teaching, both without, outside the church and inside the church. Also lovingly coming alongside and, and leading and correcting the congregation and different members of the congregation when they are in sin, when they're in error. But notice that the task is vaguely referred to as oversight. Now that is, that is a pretty broad job. It's, it's pretty vague. You might wonder, okay, so what did, what did that mean in the church that Peter was writing to? Well, we don't have a lot of info on these churches outside of the New Testament, but we do have other examples within the book of Acts, how the elders exercised oversight. You saw the elders trying to make sure that the needs of widows and orphans were met. They didn't in a hands-on way, run the different ministries of the church. They said, we need to be devoted to the word and to prayer. And so instead, they established deacons as leaders for the ministries to make sure that they were run well, to make sure that there was accountability. But ultimately, their authority and oversight was higher than that of the deacons, and the deacons were accountable to them in how they ran their ministries. And so the oversight is a type of authority that God used to bless the church so that their ministries ran well. And and in just a moment, I want to point out the verse that describes how the church responds to their loving, careful leadership. Uh, he, He instructs the church to submit to the leadership that God establishes. But before I do that, I don't want to skip over Peter spends as much time telling these elders and shepherds what they are not to do as he does telling them what to do. And these are helpful as we assess the character of people that may serve in leadership within the future. And so first he says, not only are you to shepherd and exercise oversight, he says, you're not to do this under compulsion. In other words, not out of a guilt complex like you feel like you have to, but out of a sincere desire. Now, What does that look like? 
Well, I can tell you from my own life, God did a real change in my heart to make me open to pastoral ministry, where if you had asked me right out of college, I planned on being a professor in a seminary somewhere because I didn't really want to have to argue about things that didn't seem like they mattered that much. Uh, and, and in my mind, I, there was a lot of conflict over flowers, not living flowers, but fake flowers that they hung up seasonally. And I thought, what a stupid thing to fight over. Why is the pastor even involved in that? And I thought, I don't ever want to have to be involved in anything so ridiculous. So I'll just go do this thing. I'll equip other people to go serve in the front lines and they can take all the heat for having the wrong flowers out. Um, out of that place of immaturity in my heart, I began to recognize the faithful leadership of guys like Pastor Lutzer, who served Moody Church for 35 years, who with amazing wisdom and grace, took a church that was predominantly white in a very diverse neighborhood and led them to a kind of beautiful racial integration and harmony where not only was the congregation racially diverse, but the leadership of the church was racially diverse. And he did that with a kind of humility and vision that said, church, if we are supposed to reach the people around us, our congregation probably should look like the community around us. And so they they were careful to try to pursue the people that they lived among. His humility and wisdom could be shown in so many other ways, but sitting under his leadership helped me aspire to want to serve a church in a way that he had. And, and not only that, I, I began to listen to some biographies of other famous pastors and, and listen to some teaching of a pastor that I still really deeply respect. And as my soul was ministered to by really great teaching, I started to feel like, man, I actually, I wanna get in the trenches. I want my life to make a difference. Yeah, I could teach and yeah, that might make a difference. But I believe the church is where the boots are on the ground. And I would much rather serve on the front lines of real ministry than back behind it where, where we're just kind of preparing people to go out to the front lines. I, I don't want to be in an officer academy. I, I want to serve in a place where people need Jesus in a real way. And, and so my heart began to have this desire. Now, I'll be honest. I still hate stupid arguments over stuff that doesn't matter. And we've had a few of them. There are times where I don't want to debate whether or not we should keep something or throw it away or build a barn or I, I don't care. My heart and my passion is to help people know Jesus through knowing the word and knowing it well. And I want to see us faithful in the types of ministry that Jesus so clearly commands. And yes, we have a building to take care of. And yes, we need to manage all kinds of stuff. But the main thing is not the stuff. The main thing is the ministry of the word so that those who don't know Jesus are saved. That makes an eternal difference. No one's gonna care about anything like an ice cream machine or, or anything 100 years from now. We're not gonna be in glory in eternity feeling like maybe we made the wrong decision on not building another storage unit. It's not gonna matter. But what is going to matter is if we faithfully preach the gospel and if we faithfully know the word so that we're protected from error, so that we're able to suffer and suffer well. That's something that every believer is going to go through. And so my passion as a pastor is to be devoted to this ministry of the word. But not only that, I say this to you because some of you have asked the question, should I serve in leadership and how much willingness do I have to have and how much compulsion is acceptable and permissible before I'm disqualified? 
So you might look around and feel like there's no one, there's no one willing to step up and lead spiritually, so maybe I should. And so you feel compelled and you're under compulsion. And maybe that, Peter says, you have to do this willingly. Well, I'm gonna be honest. There's always going to be a mixture, always. There are days where insignificant things so discourage me that I wanna throw my hands up and say, forget it, this is not my problem. It's not what I signed up for. But at the end of the day, The desire to see the church built and to see Jesus glorified wins that fight. And so if you feel a pull in your heart to see the church built up spiritually, even if you have things pulling the other way, I would say, you're not failing that test. You're just human. And so be ready and be willing to serve, not under compulsion, but recognize the willingness that's in your heart and ask the Lord to help you to have a clear mind if he's calling you to serve in leadership. So not only are we to serve willingly and not under compulsion, not because you have to, but because you get to, he says very clearly that you are not to do this for shameful gain, but eagerly. Uh, if you remember, some of you grew up reading the, the King James. This has one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. Pastors are not to serve for filthy lucre. The ESV is probably more helpful in understanding what that means. You're not in it for the money. And we all know famous examples of pastors, of celebrity pastors that are filthy rich, fly around in jets and have crazy expensive shoes and watches. And yeah, I get it. Those guys are out there. You know what? They actually were back in the New Testament too. That's not the norm. And God will deal with those people who have abused their positions of authority. And we should be honest about them. We should not make excuses for them, but say, yes, their motivation is wrong and they have no business being in ministry. And I regret that they're publicly known. That said, a pastor's heart should not be greedy, but instead should be generous should be an example to the flock that money doesn't have any hold on his heart. So he's very quick to give personally. He's able to model a life of simplicity so that he's not a slave to debt. And so money and how you treat money becomes a very serious qualifier for how you are able to serve the church in public ministry. You can't treat this as a means for gain. You have to be willing to do it even when you don't get paid. There are so many faithful pastors that never receive any compensation. Many of them live in in countries where it's illegal to be a full-time pastor, and so they have a regular day job, and then they try to shepherd the flock in the gaps. That's not ideal. And in fact, elsewhere, uh, Paul makes it very clear that churches are to pay their pastors if that's at all possible. And yet, the goal for the pastor is to have a heart that's willing to serve regardless of that kind of compensation. So you don't do it for what you get out of it, but you do it eagerly. Not only that, you're not to be domineering over those in your charge, but you're to be an example to the flock. I've said again and again and again that pastors are not generals, they are shepherds. You don't bark at the sheep and yell at them and tell them where they have to go. You lovingly lead them and graciously lead them. And when correction is unfortunately painfully necessary, you ought to be able to be an example even in that, in gentleness and in kindness. We all can think of examples of domineering leaders. In fact, our church has been burned by at least one that I know of. I've heard of a couple in our longer history. And there's no need to name names. That's not what a pastor should be like. And as 
Peter here describes the role of elders slash pastors, it's very clear that they are to be the type of shepherd that Jesus was with the kind of self-sacrificial, humble servant leadership. And yet it is a leadership that does have authority. Before I talk about that, he, he mentions the compensation that an elder has. So he's given this command, faithfully oversee the flock of God, thinking of all those warnings that Paul gave the church, there are gonna be outside threats, there are gonna be inside threats, be a faithful overseer with the right motivation, with the right attitude. And then he does say that there is a future reward and it's right and it's good to anticipate that and to look forward to it. So he's given commands for overseers, then he gives compensation for overseers in verse four. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus returns, you overseers will receive the unfading crown of glory. Calvin says, Peter gives pastors this encouragement because without it, they would give up and never want to be in ministry. And I have to say, I don't think about this as much as I should. And I think sometimes when you're approached to serve in church leadership, we don't think about this as much as we should. That there is a future reward for present service. That when service makes you tired and worn out and frustrated and you want to quit, part of what you are supposed to legitimately do is to look forward to the future reward that God has promised you for faithful service. Recognize that God is ultimately the one who takes care of the under shepherd. God is ultimately the one who pays the pastor. And that's not an excuse for the church to say, God's gonna take care of it, we don't owe him a dime. Paul says you are supposed to take care of that. But that's not to be the pastor's motivation, it's not the pastor's job to look for that. God will take care of them both now and in the present and church take care of your pastors. And I want to say thank you. I believe you, you have been very generous with me. So I, I don't want to preach this in a way that says, man, I'd like a raise. That's, that's not what I'm getting at at all. God is the one who will take care of me presently and in the future. Church, let's be faithful as we think what the future looks like to honor and take care of those that God calls to serve our flock so there's compensation for these pastors, these shepherds. Three, he gives a command for everyone in verse five. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when I started studying this passage, one of the questions I had was, how can you be sure that he's not just generally speaking to older people and younger people, because this verse kind of refers to just younger people in general. So how do you know that he's actually talking about pastors and a position of leadership and authority within the church? And I think part of that is just carefully reading verses one through four, so you understand there is a distinction here. He's telling them to exercise oversight. Well, if the whole church exercises oversight, that is an unending nightmare of a meeting that you don't want to be part of. If everyone is in charge, meaningfully no one is in charge and nothing will get done. So he is making some sort of authority distinction here 
The question is, who's he talking to when he turns and addresses younger people? So I was talking with some guys that have some gray hair. Uh, that's, uh, I have a couple, but not a lot. But they have more than me. So they would fit the, the qualification of being elder in the literal physical sense. And I said, guys, what, what do you think about this? And, and one of them said, hey, you know what? I, I kind of think if he's appealing to the more mature within the church to be the pool that you draw your leadership from, he's probably just describing those who are not mature in that sense and not qualified to serve as leadership. So you can think over here is elder, kind of mature believer. Over here is younger, less mature believer. And, and in one sense, you can have less mature believers who are very old in terms of physical age. And, and I can think of a guy, uh, Mel Reinwald, uh, came to Christ when he was in his late 70s and died when he was in his early 80s. Uh, I saw fruit in his life. It was incredibly exciting because when I first met him, he was like, man, I don't know about the truth of any of that. And what about aliens? He wanted to talk a lot about aliens. I have never talked so much about aliens in all of my life. And days before he died, he had come to Christ and told me very clearly how he had trusted Jesus as his savior. And as I was, he, he's like, pastor, I just want to go over this one more time because I'm about to die and I, I want to be real clear on this. And I said, I don't blame you. I'd want to be real clear on it too. And so I went and visited him in his house and his visiting nurse comes in and, and she came in right before we were about to pray. And so I, I'm always careful and respectful of it. You know, she didn't want to come into a religious service and she's got a job to do and I don't want to get in her way. So I just said, hey, would you just mind if we prayed really quick? Uh, I, I'm about to leave and then, you know, you can kind of do what you need to do. And she said, oh yeah, absolutely. Go right ahead. And in the way that she said it, she made it clear that she was not going to be praying with us, which I, I was just going to let it go. Like, I don't care. I, you know, I'm, I'm not here to force you to become a Christian in the 15 seconds that I've known you. And so I was like, all right, let's pray. And Mel's like, wait, how can you not believe in God? And I was like, Mel, like, <laughs> if you had known yourself three years ago, you might be a little more gentle. But I could see the fruit in his life that he wanted this woman to know the God who had saved him. And he'd only been a believer for maybe 18 months. Now, he was not a mature believer, even though he was old. Got to be careful how I talk about old people. Um, he was not a mature believer, even though he was advanced in years. He would have been in this younger category. And you could see how we related to each other because he called me to help him understand the Bible. I understand the Bible better than he did. I've read it all, and, and, and he hadn't. And so as he wanted some comfort and assurance before he died, he called a pastor into his life to help him understand the word of God, to give him confidence right before he passed. He would have been younger even though he had 50 years on me. The flip side is, you can think of more mature believers in terms of those who know the scriptures and God through his providence has caused them to have a type of personal maturity beyond just head knowledge. And you can think of people like Timothy in the New Testament where Paul says, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Timothy is someone who was discipled by the apostle Paul and put into church leadership at a younger age than normal. And yet he was qualified to serve and called to serve. And so Paul said, even though you are physically young, you are an elder in the church. And those who are older than you in physical age have a responsibility to follow your pastoral leadership. So here in 1 Peter, 
When Peter says, likewise, you, you who are younger, I believe that's exactly what he's talking about. Those of you who are not called to pastoral ministry, really regardless of age, you have a responsibility to be subject to your elders. Now, that is not a popular position, especially in the American church, uh, but it is a biblical position. Hebrews 13, 17, writing to the entire church says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. How does this apply to our church? Church, I believe that we need more people in spiritual leadership. Now, every year when we nominate people, we nominate people to teams, and the teams do helpful ministries, and I don't want to say anything bad about those ministries, except that most of them do not directly disciple the congregation. Um, and I've, it's been explained to me, spiritual growth is supposed to be responsible for the discipleship of the congregation. Well, okay, so if that's the case, then who is responsible for leading the church? Is it the pastor and the spiritual growth chair? How does the spiritual growth chair that's responsible for the growth of the rest of the church relate to the chair for, say, benevolence? How do they together lead the church? And I think part of the reason it's confusing and part of the reason we struggle to make decisions as a council is our structure does not mirror the biblical structure that's been laid down in scripture. There is a strange sort of mixture of this ministry has prominence in our church, this team has a chair, and so that chair is part of the council, and the council is part of the leadership of the church, but no one on council wants to say, I have authority in the church, but elders are to have authority and pastors are to have authority. And if that's the case, then that means there's a burden of spiritual leadership on me and Chris that probably cannot adequately shepherd the entire congregation. I can tell you one of my greatest challenges and frustrations as a pastor is that there are so many things that I have not done that I would like to do. I would like to know every one of you personally I would like to know your stories better. I would like to share in your griefs more. But the problem is there's only one of me. And I can tell you about different challenges. And try, you know, I, I made my first hospital visit in almost a year last Monday. Uh, finally, Genesis allowed me to come in. They, they scanned my forehead and I failed that because I had a hat on and it made my forehead too warm. And so I stood in front of this goofy camera. It was like a full body scanner. And they're like, okay, you're good. You don't have a fever. And I was like, I didn't think I had a fever. So I went in and, and I masked up and I, and I got to, to make this hospital visit. Well, partly because of COVID and partly because of a couple other things, it took my whole day. So at the end of Monday, I felt enormously frustrated and in some sense that I had kind of failed as a pastor because I had a list of stuff that just didn't happen because I did something that I needed to do that was good, that was necessary, that was required. And so I guess what I'm saying is, I think maybe the most important letter in this passage is the letter S, in verse one, it says, I exhort the elders among you. We should have more people doing that kind of shepherding care. We should have more people who are not only able to serve in a ministry, 
but who are able to handle the word with maturity. And maybe you don't feel adequate in that. I think actually it's probably a good thing if you don't feel super adequate. Because if you feel super adequate, you probably will not be gentle. You'll probably be domineering. And so I want to say, church, I believe that our church needs more leadership with real authority. Because right now, decisions by default fall to people who dominate their teams. So a chair is probably not comfortable contradicting a couple of people who are loud on the team. And so if we try to set a calendar as a council and one or two people on one of the teams comes to council and says, no, we want to do this, this date, this is the best date, our hands are tied as a church. We can't change that. And if you come to me and ask me, why is it in this? It, it, you know, it gets in the way of this. I'm going to say, I couldn't do anything about it because I don't have authority in a meaningful sense. I think the truth is, no one does. And my desire as the leader and shepherd of this congregation is to move us to a place where we have a godly team of elders that will lovingly say, what's the big picture for all of First Baptist of Holly? What's the big picture for Holly and for Michigan and for the United States? How do we as a little congregation in Holly, Michigan, faithfully carry out the mission that Jesus has given us? There are so many gaps in discipleship in our church and two people cannot do it. And so I want to say to you, church, we preach through 1 Peter partly because of suffering, partly because Peter talks about men and women in such helpful and beautiful ways, even though it's challenging and hard, but partly because the next book that I would like to go to is 1 Timothy. And I think Peter lays a compassionate, careful foundation for what the church should look like. And I want to go to 1 Timothy and say, all right, how has God described church leadership? How should the church respond? How do we call and equip elders to serve? What does that look like? And I don't want to impose my vision on you. I want to ask you to study the scriptures carefully together. And then let's follow the Lord Jesus carefully. Before I close, I, I want to mention, some have felt like if they don't agree with church teaching that they, they need to leave. That's very common. That's not unique to our church. It's Normal. If you just, I don't agree with the direction or vision of this church, but I'm, I'm going to go. That's the exact opposite of what Peter has said to do here. Uh, we are to examine the scriptures, and if I, as a humble pastor, say this is what the Word teaches, and we, as a congregation, examine it together and study it and understand that is what the Word teaches. Leaving doesn't solve the problem. It's disobedience. It's saying. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God has established in my church. I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what. And many churches in America have bucked this clear description of how leadership is to be established in the church. I, I uh, followed a link to uh, the Church of the Week a couple of months ago. If you get the ABC emails, there's a Church of the Week. It says you can know the different churches all throughout Michigan. And I'm not gonna tell you which church it was. If, if you clicked on the link, maybe you can figure it out. But one of them, in, in their core values, talked about some things that historically are associated with American Baptist churches, but, but it was so proud of this idea called soul freedom, where it very clearly said, we do not believe that clergy has the right to tell you what to think or what to 
believe. And okay, like in one sense, I'll agree with that. If you're reacting to like a Roman Catholicism where the Pope says, this is the the received teaching of the church, you must not deviate from it. Okay, I, I get it, I agree, that's wrong. But in another sense, if you believe that every member of the church has the right to contradict the word of God and the clear teachings of the word, and that if the pastor says one thing and you say something else, that you have the right to say the pastor's 100% wrong. Now, I wanna be careful here because it's the word that has authority, not the pastor. But if you believe that you can contradict the word of God and say my pastor's just wrong on this, you need to be careful. You need to be careful because not only is God holding me accountable, he will hold you accountable. And so the idea of soul freedom and individuals determining what they believe and and authority is not acceptable within the church is very pervasive. And I wanna say that's actually one of the dangerous ideas that Paul says can come into the church. God has created us to be a loving family where we respond to each other the way he designed. And if you buck and chafe against that authority, it will not be good for you or the pastors that lead you. And so by way of maybe saying, let's look at our history again, I have this little book. Um, it, was, it was given to me. Uh, it, originally, it says, Compliments of the American Baptist Publication Society, uh, and it gives their address in Philadelphia. If you turn about the third page in, it's not numbered at this point. It says, first printing is 1867. So this is not a new book. Um, and it also is published by the American Baptist Publication Society. And I think that matters because it suggests that maybe we don't remember some of our older history as American Baptists. And you can still buy this, and I'm, I may get a couple more copies. Uh, I, I don't know the author very well. Uh, his, his last name is Pendleton. It's the first time I've heard of him is picking up this book and, and reading it. But I want to quote you some of the things that it says. Because the idea of a church that has no authority where members believe what they want to believe is so common and so prevalent, I want to point out that's not actually true to our history. So Pendleton, whoever he is, writing for the American Baptist Church Society, says this. Uh, Parenthetically, he also says it'd be good for churches to have more than one pastor. He doesn't elaborate on that very much, but he says that is the biblical model, but he can't imagine a scenario where you don't pay your pastor, so he says most churches are not gonna be able to do that. But many pastors, many churches that have this model simply have what they call lay elders, where traditionally we might have called them deacons, but they serve on a voluntary basis, but they have a unique responsibility to pray for and visit and disciple the people in a relational way, and they have authority within the church. So there's a little section in this called the authority of pastors, and I just want to read you a couple things. He's, he's ending a conversation about congregational authority. And he says, all things earthly are liable to abuse. And that feature of congregational church government, which places all the members on an equality in the transaction of church business, has been, in some instances at least, suffered to interfere with the deference due to pastors. Now that's 19th century speech for saying, The idea of everybody being equal in the church has caused pastors to not receive the authority that God intended for them to have biblically. And he's writing this in 1867, or at least published in 1867. He says, there is a class of scriptures whose import is not sufficiently considered 
such as the following. So they're just, hey, church, if you think that everyone is equal in the church, and I, I have a great uh, diagram from our church history that shows all of the team leaders, and then there's the pastor over here, not exactly connected to any other team, but on the same level with all the chairs, and that's the structure for authority. So if you are responsible for stewardship and finance, you have no more or less authority than the pastor who is responsible for the souls of the congregation. And I want to suggest that's actually not biblical. What he says here, and he's just quoting scripture, and so I think it's helpful to recognize in an American Baptist tradition, he says, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Again, he's quoting, he says, let the elders that rule well, I mean, that's authoritative language, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Another passage, he says, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken to you the word of God. And again, from our passage today, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. And so in these passages, again, quoting from his little book, pastors are being referred to and there is claimed for them an authority not belonging to the other church members. The words rule, obey, and submit in the foregoing quotations mean something. The ruling is not unrestricted and neither is the obedience and the submission. The pastor is to rule in accordance with the law of Christ. No other kind of rule is legitimate or obligatory, but when he rules in accordance with the will of Christ, obedience and submission on the part of the members of the church are imperative duties. And he quotes a guy named Andrew Fuller. So Andrew Fuller well says, it is in this view as teaching divine truth and enforcing divine commands that the servants of God in all ages have been invested with divine authority. It may be added that this is the only sense in which men can be invested with divine authority. Now, that's a lot of words. And the only reason I included such a lengthy quotation is I think it's helpful to look at some of our older history and to look at some of the people that have gone on before but have been forgotten and to recognize that maybe our 21st century church has forgotten some of the things that would benefit us richly and some of the things that would help us so much be better connected relationally. If you've battled with loneliness in the past year, if you've felt like you wish that our family were closer, I believe this will help. Good shepherds love their people. And I believe that we need more shepherds. So how do we apply this text? Peter's given some commands to the elders among us. Well, most of you are not elders. I'm looking at the only other guy that, that would qualify back in the back there. There are two of us. So we need to follow this. But if you're not an elder here today, this passage matters deeply for you. I would say, number one, begin praying about whether or not you should serve in this capacity within the future. Church, let's pray that God would give us the wisdom to know how best to organize this church. Uh, I've heard so many people say communication is a disaster and a nightmare. And I'd be willing to own that I'm part of the problem. 
But I would also suggest that the organization and structure is part of the problem too. And I believe that there is a better way that will help with this. And so I would ask, church, would you be willing to look at 1 Timothy with me with an open mind, with a mind that would say, what does God want us to be for the next however long until Jesus comes back? Is there a way that we can disciple our people better regardless of age? Is there a way that we can submit to godly church leadership in a way that we aren't currently? Can we follow this better? I believe that we can. And so I would ask that you would pray for the future of our church around this idea. I would ask that you would pray for me as an under-shepherd following Christ and for Chris as an under-shepherd following Christ that we would be worthy under-shepherds. This is not an easy job. Not, not to make it seem overimportant, but the qualifications are deeply personal. And so it's hard to wrestle with, am I qualified in this area, in this area, in this area? And if I make a mistake with my kids, am I still qualified? And if I make a mistake, it's not easy to try to lead the church. And so I'd ask that you would pray for the pastors that we have that we're currently serving. I would ask that you would pray that God would establish more shepherds from within our congregation as you wrestle with, should I serve in that way? Use this passage to assess your heart. Are you prone to anger? Are you domineering? Do you have to have your way? Are you greedy? Or do you set an example? Are you patient and sympathetic? Are you generous? Do you listen to good suggestions from other people and put them into practice? Because if you are able to be humble and if you love the Lord and love his word, then perhaps... Perhaps you should serve as an elder. Now, there are other qualifications. I believe we'll, we'll see all of those when we look at 1 Timothy. But all I want to ask right now is, church, let's have an open heart to what God would have for us. And let's seek his word so that we are better equipped to serve him and one another as a congregation. Would you pray with me? Father, you have called your church together. Lord, I pray that you would Build us up and strengthen us and establish us by your word. I pray that you would bless us with a godly leadership that is humble, that loves your truth, that is gracious and kind, like as a good shepherd, is also firm and wise. I pray that in these times that are uncertain, that you would protect us, that you would strengthen us, that you would establish us. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask it. Amen.